Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump had several tweets today about what he calls Robert Mueller's witch hunt. The president called on his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to put a stop to it. The trial of Paul Manafort's underway, and President Trump weighed in on Manafort, too. He said Manafort worked for Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other prominent and respected political leaders. He worked for me for a short period of time. Why didn't the government tell me that he was under investigation? These are old charges that have nothing to do with collusion, a hoax. Let's talk about where the investigation of Russian influence is at with Michael Isakoff. He's author of uh, The Inside um, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War on America and the Election of Donald Trump. And he's the chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. Thanks for joining us again, Michael Isakoff. Good to be with you. Um, when the president tweets to his attorney general to put a stop to the Robert Mueller investigation, how do you take that? Is that a, a serious you know, order done by Twitter, or is that just um, <laughs> the, the the wind talking? Um, I, a little bit of both. Um, I, look, Trump has been saying this for some time. Uh, he clearly has made known his displeasure that uh, uh, Jeff Sessions recused himself from the um, Russia investigation from the get-go. Um, the fact is, Sessions had little choice. He consulted the ethics advisors of the Justice Department, and they came back and said, look, you were part of the Trump campaign. Uh, you worked on the campaign. Uh, this is an investigation in part into what the Trump campaign knew uh, and and um, how it responded. And so, therefore, you, you need to recuse yourself. Um, Sessions, at this point, as a practical matter, can't do any, can't do what the president wants him to do. He would have to um, essentially ignore the uh, formal advice he's already gotten from Justice Department ethics uh, advisors. Uh, and that would, in and of itself, would cause an uproar. Now, one has to wonder, why is the president uh, returning to this mantra at this point in time? And given all the indications that... Um, the Mueller investigation is moving forward methodically and may well be close to presenting a report on obstruction of justice by the president. Uh, that could be the motivating factor here that uh, prompted this tweet storm this morning. Uh, the problem is you just never know with President Trump what is provoking him. Well, let's talk about the trial of Paul Manafort a bit. Uh, I, I've been reading what legal observers say, and it seems like everybody thinks it is a real long shot for Paul Manafort to beat the charges at trial. Um, what do you think this man's calculation was to go to trial? I, I, you know, it, it's hard to know. Uh, he's got 18 counts in this trial. Then there's another uh, indictment in the District of Columbia, um, uh, charging him with serious felonies. Uh, so the prospects he's got for uh, running the table, as it were, and getting an acquittal on all counts in both trials seems exceedingly low. Um, 
part of this just could be uh, Manafort's makeup. He doesn't believe in uh, in cooperating with the government. He wants uh, he's always struck a somewhat defiant pose to anybody who has criticized him. So there's you know certainly an element of that. Uh, he doesn't want to be known as a uh, snitch or a rat or somebody who dimed out uh, the Trump White House. But you can't uh, also um, uh, ignore the fact that uh, a pardon has got to weigh heavily in his thinking that uh, at the end of the day, given especially given the president's tweets about Manafort, uh, that could only encourage him to believe that uh, he could get a pardon uh, at the end of the day from uh, President Trump. All right. So it, his whole defense line that he is presenting, I'm going to blame Rick Gates for everything, that probably they're just um, that's just what they're doing. It seems unlikely that Rick Gates really did everything with Paul Manafort's money. It's um, this trial well, should work for Paul Manafort and the, the charges against Manafort relate to uh, lying about his taxes and all the the, the the massive amounts, tens of millions of dollars that rolled in to these various offshore accounts, uh, it's going to be difficult for Manafort's lawyers to make the case that uh, Manafort uh, was unaware of all this. Uh, so should we really pay close attention to the Manafort trial, or should we just wait for the, 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 the jury's verdict? Uh, well, of course we should wait for the jury's verdict, because you never know what a jury might do. Uh, but, you know, the real pressure and drama is likely to take place after that jury verdict comes in, assuming its convictions. And remember, Manafort is looking at uh, potentially uh, – a uh, spending the rest of his life in prison. Uh, and uh, that is a sobering prospect for everybody. So, you know, clearly the expectation all along has been that um, if convicted, uh, then Manafort, um, if a pardon is not immediately forthcoming or there's, it becomes too politically problematic for the president to pardon Manafort, um, that um, he could flip and cooperate with Mueller's investigation. But, you know, I... I I have to should point out there was another development um, in the last uh, day or so that uh, could throw a real wild card into things, and that is the news that uh, Mueller's investigators have referred uh, uh, criminal investigations into three people who were part of Manafort's orbit in his work uh, for the pro-Russia political party in the Ukraine. And those were the two lobbying firms he hired, uh, Mercury, um, in particular, Vin Weber, former Minnesota Republican congressman, uh, and then also Tony Podesta, brother of John Podesta, the Clinton campaign chairman. Both firms were hired by Manafort through what the government says was this phony nonprofit in Brussels that was really a vehicle for lobbying um, the U.S. government um, on behalf of the um, 
the Yanukovych regime. Uh, and then thirdly, another guy who was referred was Greg Craig, the former White House counsel under Barack Obama, who did legal work for Manafort um, during the time that he was represented by, uh, uh, he was working for Yanukovych. So there is also the prospect that Manafort might not just flip on Trump, or might not flip on Trump at all, but might flip on these other guys. And what a wild turn it would be if the ultimate outcome of a Manafort conviction was to increase the pressure and possibly lead to criminal prosecution of the brother of the Clinton campaign chairman and the former White House counsel under Barack Obama. Man, <laughs> that would be a twist. This uh, is... Yes, not, not one that anybody has been expecting, but the news reported just over the last day that Mueller has referred these cases to the Southern District in New York uh, really um, raises a lot of questions about where that could go. I'm talking with Michael Isakoff. He's chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. Coming up in a few moments, I'll be talking with an advisor to the student movement opposing Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Stay tuned for that. Um, I wanted to ask you a few questions about Maria Butin, um, Butina, who's um, been in the news a lot lately, and you've been writing about her at Yahoo News. And I got to admit... Uh, Maria Butina, she seems like something out of um, one of those Mike Myers movies about Austin Powers. <laughs> She's like this gun-toting, yeah, wielding, yeah. questioning the president at events. She's uh, uh, should to, how seriously should we take this woman? Uh, yes, and she is somebody we wrote about. Uh, David Corn and I wrote about in Russian Roulette uh, quite extensively. Actually, uh, look, uh, she was she and her handler Alexander Torshin, the former deputy governor of the uh, Russian Central Bank and a uh, suspected money launderer, a guy who was under investigation and nearly arrested by the Spanish National Police for money laundering, um, were uh, every bit as pa- a part of the Russian influence operation in uh, the 2016 election, as were the cyber attacks and the phony Facebook ads. Uh, this was a deliberate effort um, ca- campaign to cultivate relationships with conservative activists and particularly officials of the National Rifle Association as part of a scheme, and this is laid out in some of the emails reproduced in the government's uh, criminal complaint against uh, Butina, uh, as a, a, a plot to use the NRA to change the Republican Party's attitude towards Russia, from one of hostility towards one supportive of favorable relations. And it was kind of a savvy political insight uh, on the part of uh, 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 Butina and and Torshin, which is, look, the NRA is the most single, most powerful uh, lobby group uh, with uh, on Capitol Hill for Republicans. It spends the most money. It's the most feared um, lobbying group of all. And if you could bring the NRA around to an attitude supportive of better relations with Vladimir Putin's Russia, um, you can move, influence the Republican Party. And that was the scheme that Butina and Torshin were pursuing. 
You know, I don't think of Russian agents as being so public like Butina was. If I think of a super savvy Russian agent, I, I don't think of one doing the thing she did. And in her defense, she's maintaining, I, am, I was a student, I was an activist, I was, you know, I was none of the things that people say. Yeah. Uh, look, it is it is a twist, and there's no question about that. She was uh, uh, Butina was in some respects uh, sort of a uh, 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 an exhibitionist on uh, Facebook, constantly post posting photos of herself with guns and meeting with influential Republican uh, and NRA uh, uh, folks, such as Scott Walker, the governor of uh, of Wisconsin. She shows up at his um, presidential um, uh, announcement. Uh, when he was running for president. But she performed a very important service for the Kremlin, and that should not, uh, should not be discounted, which is that right after Donald Trump announces his candidacy for president, he goes to Las Vegas in July of 2015 for this Freedom Fest um, convention, and there is Butina in the audience asking him about sanctions on Russia, and she gets Trump to say, if I'm elected, you won't need sanctions. I can get along with um, uh, 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 Putin. Now, that was hardly a subject that was at the forefront of the Republican political uh, uh, debate at the time uh, in, the, in the presidential primaries, but it was very important to Vladimir Putin and his government, and there they had uh, Donald Trump on the record from the get-go saying he'll lift sanctions. And, you know, she was at a remarkable number of high-profile events. And I just, you know, how did she delegate her time? It seems like if you're a busy student, you're not running around to all these high-profile events and chatting up all these people. Yeah, and uh, she does seem to have gotten around. She's at CPEC conferences. She's at national prayer breakfasts. She's at NRA meetings. Um, uh, it's like wherever Republican, I mean, I spoke to one Republican lobbyist uh, who uh, remembers getting uh, a meeting uh, Butina and talking about how flirtatious she was, how she wanted to stay in touch with him, making a really deliberate effort to um, uh, form a connection with him, which surprised this lobbyist to no end. He wasn't expected to this kind of flattering attention from a, uh, a young 20-something uh, Russian woman. Uh, but that seems to have been her modus operandi. And it worked. It was effective. She did have these relationships, and there were a lot of people she knew. She showed up at the Trump inauguration. Um, she was around during uh, transition time, meeting with a lot of influential people. Um, you know, yes, she was far more public than you would expect a Russian agent to be, uh, but in some ways uh, she may have been far more effective. Michael Isakoff is chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, and he's co-author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Paul Manafort and Maria Butina. Thanks a lot. Sure, anytime. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with an advisor to the student movement opposing President Ortega in Nicaragua. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The harsh crackdown in Nicaragua has killed around 300 people, according to a human rights organization there. Thousands of people have been injured, and one of the inevitable results of repression is refugees. The U.N. says that 23,000 Nicaraguans have sought protection in Costa Rica, with thousands more there who haven't contacted U.N. officials. Let's learn more about the crisis in Nicaragua. With me is Julio martinez Alsberg. He's a member of the Platform for Social Movements and Civil Society Organizations. He's an advisor to the University Coalition for Democracy and Justice. That's one of the main Nicaraguan student movements opposing the government. Thanks for joining us, Julio martinez Alsberg. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the opposition in Nicaragua, because I've heard it described differently that there's uh, not a typical left-right. Um, is the, What does the opposition look like? The opposition, you're right, it's not a left-right thing. It's a very broad coalition uh, of people that are very tired of the government corruption and abuse, and many people, and people who are extremely angry about what happened starting on April 18th and uh, the assassinations of the protesters. Um, let's say, uh, to give you an idea of who makes that up, at the very beginning it was young people, it was university students were the first ones to come out, and they were the first ones to be shot at. Um, kind of general population started supporting the students. Uh, about a week into it, the peasant movement also started supporting the students, and the peasant movement started creating roadblocks nationwide uh, uh, in order to make the government stop the repression. And, well, um, were they really, uh, were, were the young people upset with the pension benefits issue, the, the pension reform that was there in, going on with Daniel Ortega? They had been angry for about, for a little bit longer. About a week earlier, there was a massive uh, fire in one of the natural reserves. So many of the young people who are environmental activists came out because there was a very inept response to that, to that fire. Um, and they were repressed a week earlier. And then when the pension reform, reforms came out, peaceful protests uh, came out in several cities simultaneously about the reforms. Um, but those protests were brutally uh, received by the government, uh, where their people came out and beat up the elderly, beat up the students. And that was really the beginning of it. From then on, it was really an anger about government repression. Uh, the students did not want to continue accepting this kind of violence from the government. So the next day, many of them came out. Uh, many more of them came out. Three people died. And the next day, this multiplied. And, the, and so by the third day, we had 23 deaths uh, in one day. And then it's just been kind of growing, where the opposition has been asking the government to stop and make sure that there's guarantees that there's justice for what happened and that there's guarantees that this won't happen again. But the government has only responded with more and more repression. Are there um, members of the political right out there in the street? On the street, it's very broad. So there are people from both right and left currently at the National Dialogue. Uh, there are five groups uh, that are negotiating with the government. One of them is the private sector. Um, the political right, politicians in general have been mostly absent. There, there's a general sense in Nicaragua that uh, because the right had signed a pact, essentially, uh, you know, about uh, 15 years ago with Ortega uh, to kind of share power, that they are part of the problem as well. So young people have been rejecting the political right as well. So it's not so much the political parties, but of course certain sectors that are traditionally more conservative, more right-wing, like the private sector, are also involved. 
Um, and since right now the priority is to stop government abuse, uh, there is kind of uh, an understanding between social movements and the private sector that our priority is Ortega. Now, it sounds like the, the demand is for uh, new elections and uh, his resignation. Uh, in in a negotiation, uh, it would seem like that's an unlikely thing to get. Would, do you think the opposition is willing to settle for something less than that, some kind of uh, deferred election, some sort of uh, interim thing? So kind of before thinking about elections, I mean, what people really want, first of all, is guarantees of their own security. The government has made it clear that they have criminalized protests right now, and either by killing them through the use of paramilitaries and police, or by sending them to jail with this new anti-terrorism law where practically everyone goes in and all protesters are sent to jail. So there's a, there, there needs to be guarantees for security, and there's very little trust that Ortega, who's been uh, directing this entire slaughter, would, would be able to guarantee that. So it's a very kind of practical issue. Um, there's a second matter of justice. Uh, we do want justice. We want there to be international kind of an independent international investigation to get the names of everyone that was responsible and ensure that there's justice for all the deaths and there's reparations for the families of those who have died. Um, and the Nicaraguan people also know that, that the kind of absolute power that the government has right now is part of the reason that we were able to get to this point. So there really is a request for reform so that we can really reach a democracy. Um, and it will, so, but when you've got hooded paramilitaries running around there, that the whole ob- object there is to not have accountability. They they don't want to be known. Yeah, absolutely. But the uh, but you know the paramilitaries are out there side by side with the police, and so it's it's much easier with the police. For instance, you know you start investigating the heads of the police and and really go through the entire thing. I mean, at this point, probably most of the police have been involved in one way or another, but many of them against their will. We know that many people from the police have either have either been sent to jail for refusing to take orders. Have, there have been some that have been murdered. Uh, the mother of one came out and said that the day before the, the police was murdered, she had told him that uh, he had told her that he was resigning. Um, so the police, there certainly are many people who can be held accountable very easily. I'm talking with Julio Martinez Ellsberg. He's an advisor to a key student movement opposing the Ortega government in Nicaragua. Coming up in a few moments, we're going to have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we're going to find out about the concert about uh, Selena for Sanctuary. Stay tuned for that. Um, I wanted to ask you about popular support for Daniel Ortega. Um, the election um, a couple of years ago was very successful. I mean, he got 70% of the vote. Um, there were a lot of criticisms of the election, but there seems to be a degree of uh, popular support for Daniel Ortega. The economy has gone well in Nicaragua in recent years, and uh, people were rationalizing the support of Daniel Ortega as well. We're losing some of our democracy, but we're getting good growth and um was there a sense that a lot of is there a sense right now that a lot of people in Nicaragua are happy with that uh, trade off? For a long time, you're right that that was a bit of the trade off. It, it wasn't losing a little bit of democracy; it was losing all of democracy. Uh, I mean, from 2008, from the, I mean, he won the election in 2006 with 38 percent of the vote, and from then on, he has not allowed international observers to come in. He has 
criminalized, um, or he, he has taken many of his opposition political parties out of power so they can't run anymore. Uh, and he's, done, he's, he's used his economic power with, uh, in order to get rid of any other kind of uh, private um, opposition. Um, the, the election, there was a huge um, abstention. Absten- uh, you know, the, a lot of people abstained in the last elections of 2016. But I think you're right that there, in general there was a sense of, well, at least the economy is doing well. We'll, we'll kind of deal with this a little bit later on. Um, but a lot of uh, Nicaragua's programs depended fully on Venezuelan oil money. Uh, he never reformed the tax system in, the, in, in Nicaragua so that the um, so that the Nicaraguan capitalists would pay more, and that would pay for the programs. He he set up a deal with them so where he wouldn't charge them taxes, and they wouldn't mind. They wouldn't get into his business, and in exchange. Um, in order to fund those programs, he was using Venezuelan oil money, which was up to $550 million a year. That dwindled, where in 2016 it came down to about $50 million a year. And the, the election in November, there was the election in November, and by January 1st, 2017, most of those programs were completely gone. He was just waiting for the elections to end. So a lot of what he'd been using in order to kind of coerce people or even threaten them, because if you organized against the government, you would put it on a list and you would no longer receive the programs. But now that the programs are gone and people, are, and people have been seeing the corruption and have been seeing the abuses for so long and are tired of being threatened, then they're willing to go out. But more specifically, it's the killing. If he had stopped within the first few days, within the first two days, and tried to negotiate the Social Security reforms or somewhere around that, this wouldn't have happened. But instead, he, he tried to use force against the protesters, and that's what's angered everyone else. And now most people don't think there's any going back. Most people, most people that I know that, that are in this consider themselves Sandinistas. It really is a progressive movement. So the, the students, uh, Masaya... Uh, the peasant movement, a lot of these people are Sandinistas, but they, they don't see a future in which this man um, could possibly continue running this country. How do you reflect on the importance of international support if the goal is to oust Daniel Ortega and the U.S. has been weighing in on this? And then it, that kind of creates the odd political bedfellows of these ex-Sandinistas being on the side of the Trump administration, which is usually on the side of the right wing in in in, in Nicaragua, um, there's a there's a strange thing going on. There is a it is it is a little bit strange. I think much in the same way that that um, people were kind of social movements were kind of open to talking to the private sector uh, for the time being. It really the call is just a generalized call to the outside to anyone that can help. Um, stop the violence, uh, 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 disarm the paramilitaries, uh, stop the police from shooting at the protesters or from the protesters being arrested. Any kind of help from outside is very welcome. It's really a matter of life and death. So even though, you know, there's not necessarily, I wouldn't say that there's support for Trump in Nicaragua, but uh, right now really people are really fearing for their lives. It's already been over 100 days of just pure panic and anxiety all over Nicaragua, and people just want this to end and somehow get back on a route moving forward. And Ortega knows that that's his weakest point right now. In Nicaragua, he's done a pretty good job of militarizing his people so that to destroy the roadblocks, uh, attacking the universities, you know, making hundreds of students uh, live in safe houses where they can't go out and protest anymore. He knows that outside is where his weaknesses are. That's why he's sending out this campaign. He's been trying to 
paint this as a right and left thing. As soon as it started, he started kind of mobilizing old networks from the from the 80s, trying to convince them to see what happened in the 80s is what's happening to me now, but with absolutely no proof. And we've asked for all of these human rights groups to come to, to come and see it for themselves. And every single time that they come in, they see the same thing. The government uh, in broad daylight is is killing its op- is unarmed opposition. So. He's creating enough confusion outside so that people won't act and think that it's a right and left thing. It's not. It's a humanitarian crisis. He's gone completely insane, and uh, and he's doing absolutely anything to stay in power. Um, on the other hand, the Nicaraguan people uh, will not stop this unless there's some sort of justice, because as soon as people start believing that this is over, he will continue, and he will kind of finish off the rest of his opposition, and that's what's really happening in Nicaragua. I wanted to ask a question about Daniel Ortega's wife, who is the vice president now, Rosario Murillo. And she's um, uh, there were a lot of rumors about his health and that this whole thing was a, you know, installing the next uh, successor and ensuring that his wife would would move on. Is that uh, any is that a, a backdrop to all this? Is that what's going on? There is an aspect of that. Uh, you know, his, his wife has been vice president since uh, the 2016 election. But in, in general, he, that's his ruling style. All of his children are his main advisors. He has many children, and they're the heads of the main communications company in, companies in Nicaragua. He bought most of the communications company in the country with Venezuelan oil. And, and, and it's his children that are the heads of it all. They're also heads of many other companies in the country that were bought with Venezuelan aid. So... He, he trusts very few people. He trusts a handful of people, and the majority of them are related to him. Um, so it's not unusual that she's there. In terms of her role, um, she has actually been head of the paramilitary troops for the past 10 years. You know, before paramilitaries were the ones who came out and beat up protesters just using, you know, clubs and break some ribs. Um, but now they're the ones who are shooting at the protesters. So she's always had that role anyway of... Address, of addressing any kind of kind of civil protest. Uh, so th- that's actually not, not extremely new. Uh, his health, there have been rumors about his health for a long time. Um, it's not clear what's going on there, um, but there's not too much of a change uh, in, in recently. The Catholic Church tried to mediate some sort of deal between uh, the protesters and the government. Uh, it failed, and uh, Daniel Ortega's uh, hench people have been attacking Catholic Church people. Um, what? How do you read who does the mediating? If there's some mediating to do, how, what what is the person who will do it if uh, if, if the Catholic Church is out? The Catholic Church can't be allowed to be taken out, which is what he wants. I mean, at first he called on them because they weren't, you know, participating. He said, you know, you help me figure, you help me calm, calm everyone down. But then they've been re- playing a role where they're not just mediating, but they're also providing sanctuary and they're also providing. They're, they've been instrumental in in uh, creating visibility for the human rights abuses from the government. So, you know, when students are being attacked for 15 hours, it's the church that goes up to the police and says, please let us in. There are people that are injured, there are people that have been shot, that they're dying, and we need to take them out. And so, and then the police don't let them in. So that's where it becomes uncomfortable for Ortega. The church has actually done an excellent job. In the About 10 days ago, there was a huge, or maybe last week, actually, there was a huge march in support of the priests because they're all being threatened. All their lives are being threatened, and we're all, even people who are not Catholic are extremely grateful for their role. There was, there's all these signs of evangelical supporting 
uh, you know, uh, supporting the priests. Um, so it's really more of a human, uh, hu- like a humanitarian role that they've been playing. They should stay. He wants to put other people that might be more uh, kind of friendly to him. He at first he thought the OES would be, but now he sees the the OES. Uh, they have, ha- have enough information that they won't support him anymore. So now he's asking for SICA in um, the Central American uh, this Central American uh, body to do it. But but they're, they're, they have absolutely no credibility or legitimacy, and that shouldn't happen. Um, all right, but it, that's, it kind of leaves no one to mediate. If uh, at some point he's got to accept someone, or they, they or else he, he, you know, he just thinks he can get away with this. He could, he could just keep on going. He's never really given in to anything in terms of mediation. He gave in some. The only symbolic things that he allowed that were requested by the protesters were for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to come in. He didn't want to. He eventually did it because. Uh, protesters said that they wouldn't di- they wouldn't go into the dialogue unless there were outside intervention outside observation, so, so that people can could tell that he was lying about everything. They came in and they've been doing their job, um, but he's never shown any interest in in negotiating. Uh, the only thing that can actually help him make him kind of either you know really give in and stop the violence is is some sort of diplomatic pressure. Uh, we know that there's going to be a vote tomorrow in the OAS. Um, to set up a new commission to support uh, a new commission on Nicaragua, where they can have much closer kind of supervision of what's going on. Um, he he's against that, but so hopefully that vote will go through, and th- those kind of things are useful. We're also waiting for the UN to finally say something. The High Commissioner has gone there, has seen everything, has written their reports, and still the UN hasn't said anything about this. So it's it's I think part of it is. Uh, they might they might want to be the mediators, but it really is a, more of a matter of is there enough pressure from outside so that they'll he'll notice that he really needs to stop what he's doing, um, and that's what we're hoping that that will happen uh, through these more international organizations that are aware of the situation. Julio Martinez Ellsberg is a member of the Platform for Social Movements and Civil Society Organizations. He's an advisor to the University Coalition for Democracy and Justice, one of the main Nicaraguan student movements that opposes the government of Daniel Ortega. There have been more than 300 people killed in Nicaragua now since protests first began in April. Thousands more injured. The U.N. said 23,000 Nicaraguans have sought protection in Costa Rica. They said that yesterday. Thanks a lot for joining us, uh, Julio Martinez at Ellsberg. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, Global Notes, our look at international music. We'll find out about Selena for Sanctuary. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And there's a little music from Selena. And we're going to talk about a concert called Selena for Sanctuary. Catalina Maria Johnson was there. She's a music and culture writer. She hosts Beat Latino for Vocalo. And she wrote an excellent article about the woman behind Selena for Sanctuary at Lincoln Center. It's in the online publication Ray Mezcla. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Catalina. Thanks a lot, Jerome. I'm really excited about sharing this experience. It was epic. I mean, and I don't say that all that often. (laughs) Um, Um, Tell me more about uh, Doris Munoz, who you got to talk to for for this article, and you talked with her. She's she's a concert promoter. She is. She's a young music manager. I mean, 24 young, barely 24. And she's uh, from, originally from San Bernardino County, which I understand is literally one of the most dangerous places in this country. Um, And she graduated um, from, I believe it's Southern California, but it's in Fullerton. And she loved music and became a music manager. She actually works with a few artists, uh, one that has become very popular. We'll hear him later, Google. And she's one of five in her family, but the only one that is U.S. born, so the only one that is a U.S. born natural citizen. Her brother uh, was deported summarily. His DACA status was rescinded. And he, um, he had been here since he was a toddler. Old, old toddler. Yeah, like two years old. And so she moved into action to try to uh, literally get her parents regularized and the fees were enormous, thousands of dollars, you know. So here's a young, recent graduate trying to deal with, like, the fees. So she says, well, I'm just going to get my artists and, and put a concert together. And it was originally Solidarity for Sanctuary, extremely successful, and sold out, like, 300 seats instantly. And it became the beginning of this very joyful, immensely powerful celebration of, the, of this culture. And so it... After eight editions, around the eighth edition was held in New York City. First time it travels outside of L.A., went to Lincoln Center. So it was amazing. And in the third edition, she moved it into a tribute for Selena that we just heard. Now, explain the wisdom of doing that, because Selena was a gigantic star from the 90s. Um, how, how does that kind of wedge in here? Well, she was an icon, really, a Mexican-American icon, impeccably bilingual, on, poised for crossover, superstardom, the first Tejana female Grammy Award winner, really about to like just blow up in every possible way, and her untimely assassination stopped that. So she's this very beloved icon. I mean, every this was the Selena for Sanctuary, our well-known Latinx artist singing Selena covers, and everybody in Lincoln Center, thousands of people in the amphitheater, thousands outside the line around Lincoln Center that they just st- stood there were singing at the top of their lungs to every single song, including uh, the one we just heard. And here's, we should hear some of the artists that actually sure. uh, were there um, because it was very pan Latino, even though I would say the population was all Latinx and possibly uh, hard to say very Mexican and Mexican-American, but there were a lot of Guatemalans, and they were there for this artist, Gabi Moreno. Am I an immigrant or am I a new slave made for all brutality? I don't think so. 
is it that man has lost his reason? He can't even blame the heat. They're moving like jackals in the hunting season. In the hunting season. And the refugee's soul is the meat. Oh, yeah, yeah. The immigrants are here to stay. That's Gabby Moreno, uh, who we hear regularly on our station on Live From Here with Chris Steely on the weekends. Um, She is a terrific asset to that show, singing three, four songs a week and and all kinds of styles. She's an incredible talent, and I'm glad she was at uh, Selena for Sanctuary. She was, and so those uh, blue and white flags from Guatemala were flying along with the Mexican flag. It was such a proud, powerful moment, and Gabi, of course, has this amazing voice, so it... All the artists were very well selected. In a way, they were very well selected and curated for a number of reasons. One is to pull in this very young crowd. I mean, literally, I don't think anybody was over 25 except me and a few others. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, also to like pull in different aspects of Selena in a way. And uh, another very important aspect is her, her kind of, if you watch the Selena videos, this she was so charismatic and she was so like easily sexy very delightful and charming and this next artist who is from chile and a very very popular uh, kind of retro almost cabaret uh, young diva. She's based in Mexico, so she has a huge Mexican following. And this is Mon Lafert. She was also at the Selena for Sanctuary concert at Lincoln Center. Mon Lafette, one of the artists at Selena for Sanctuary. Catalina Maria Johnson was there seeing the concert at Lincoln Square with a bunch of young people. And Lincoln, Center. Lincoln Center. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I want to say something more about uh, Selena and the kind of um, appeal that she has to uh, to immigrants in this country. She, she is someone who um, spoke English as a first language. She's someone who kind of resembles them in in a way in many ways in many ways i was i've been thinking a lot about the word crossover i mean she was a huge example of successful crossover in every possible way the other thing is uh she was one of the first we're talking the mid-90s one of the first major superstars that uh latinx kids very young kids recognized look she looked like them, you know, yep. she looked like us. So she was on the stage. She was beautiful. She was charismatic, and uh, she looked, you know, she represented so huge representational element that this Selena for Sanctuary concert then taps into because you have to understand that I kept feeling that we've been so bruised and battered, you know, our culture has been so um, derided and maligned that to. 
to see and to experience and celebrate the beauty and the power of it at a place like Lincoln Center was so powerful. Uh, one of the curators uh, of Lincoln Center and the director of programming, Jill Sternheimer, said, and I quoted her in the article, she said, joy is a form of resistance. And Doris Munoz was very was very clear of, about that. She was like, this is, we are important, we are special, and our values are unmatched. And this is what something like this celebrates. So um, here's another artist that, this one, it's a, this is interesting. This is Young Kuko from South Cal, Chicano, indie, heartthrob. And he got huge on YouTube. In fact, the Selena for Sanctuary, the third edition, was his first venue show, as he and calls it. If people go and look in, on YouTube for his videos, and they, they've been played millions of times, They're rem, so the early ones are remarkably simple and he, have, have a very simple charm to them. Simple charm, yes. I, I kept saying, I, I don't get Kuko. <laughs> but I have to tell you, the teenage girls that swarmed Lincoln Center and broke through the yellow tape, they get him. And then I listened to this song a lot, and I thought, I'm, I'm kind of getting it. Yeah, he's a little bit like the guy next door, and, and he's incredibly sweet, but not saccharine. So here's, uh, here's Kuko. That's Kuko, one of the stars that was at the Selena for Sanctuary concert in Lincoln Center. Catalina Maria Johnson was there. Kuko is still, still working on facial hair. He's that young. He's, <laughs> he's not. He's really young. <laughs> but he, he, everybody knew the words to all the Selena songs, but there were a couple of artists that when they came on stage, like the amphitheater exploded, and Kuko was one of them. I mean, he's extremely extremely popular in the under 25 crowd and and i i have to say that i started kenny understanding the charm the simple charm (laughs) (laughs) Uh, his his videos are super straightforward there's just like him in a bedroom singing uh these uh, these uh, heart puppy songs these puppy love songs basically Uh, basically but uh there's uh there's lots of room for puppy love in this world and he did a, a couple of uh Selena's kind of bouncy cumbias, one la carcacha, and it, it was it was very delightful. Um, we've got room for a couple of the other artists that were at the Selena for Sanctuary concert. Um, who was there? Well, here's another artist, and I love uh, Nina, Nina Diaz. I love her for a number of reasons. One is she used to be in a group called Girl uh, in a Coma, which was uh, had the, this <laughs> punk Texan attitude, Girl in a Coma. And she's gone through some, some very deep personal struggles, which she's very open about. But she was one that brought up like the fierceness of Selena, kind of like the feminine under text, subtext in Selena at times. And this is uh, Nina Diaz. (laughs) 
That's Nina Diaz, one of the folks who is at the Selena for Sanctuary concert at Lincoln Center. What does the movement do now? You've, you've done eight, nine concerts. You've played Lincoln Center. Where, where, what is it doing? Come to Chicago. No, I don't know. <laughs> I hope. Um, I would love to see this at Millennium Park. That's just kind of like I kept thinking, oh, man. But um, I think they're going to keep up, they're going to keep up some kind of concert series. But also, um, Doris Munoz is very clear that she wants to help different pockets of undocumented immigrants. Um, so they've helped dreamers. They've helped them get their $500 fee to you know, uh, g- apply for renewal. They've done fundraising. They've done awareness. But she also wants to start like a visual arts traveling gallery, so deal with different art forms too. So I think that's kind of where Selena for Sanctuary might be going next. Well, thanks for bringing us the story. Catalina Maria Johnson is a music and culture writer. She hosts Beat Latino on Vocalo. And you can find her excellent article on the woman behind uh, the Selena for Sanctuary concerts, Doris Munoz, in the online publication, Remez Kla. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Catalina. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, a pleasure to share. Here's Selena. Uh, so we're going out on her. <laughs> Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the future of human rights in Mexico and the 43 students who disappeared. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.